Good tidings and ahoy! It's us again at the Nasty Pasty Podcast. Back blasting bouffants of badness directly to your eardrums. Forget the flour and the baking soda, the fruity compote and the meaty fillings. Because despite the name of our show, there's no Mary Berry-esque recipes or Prue favourites. Our merchandise is exploitation, slashes, jolly, and trashy horrors that would have raised many an eyebrow back in the 80s where video nasties were at the forefront of the headlines and the minds of the dealers who were arrested and prosecuted for distributing obscene materials. All a lot of nonsense, of course, which is what this podcast is kind of all about. We analyse and research other similar titles which were just as nasty in terms of content or themes, but just weren't considered nasty enough to make it onto the hallowed lists themselves. We can ask ourselves why this is, but honestly, you'd have to be in the same mindset of someone who thought I Miss You Hugs and Kisses and Frozen Scream were obscene enough to turn people into murderers. Anyhow, today's episode, our 25th episode, is on early Nazi exploitation films. We've already covered the precursors of this genre on our proto-Nazi episode. If you remember, we watched The Night Porter and The Damned, both of which introduced elements of this later subgenre. So the two films that we have this week are Nazi exploitation films that were released after the genre was kick-started with the video nasty Love Camp 7 in 1969. After this example, the genre began to form itself until it was cemented by one of the films that we're covering today, Ilse Schiebelf of the SS. But we're also covering Salon Kitty, which is a comparable film to The Damned with its more arthouse pretensions and its satirical tone. As we've already covered what Nazi exploitation consists of in our previous episode on the subject, let's be irresponsible and skip the history lesson, for now anyway, and dive headfirst into our first film of the week, Salon Kitty. That broken bones and broken hearts take over so long to make. You've heard it so often, it must be true. Will you believe it when it happens to you? Madam Kitty, the owner of the extravagant Salon Kitty brothel, puts on a cross-dressing performance, entertaining the night's guests. 
Vollenberg, a Nazi commandant, and his friend Biondo devise a plan to source 20 girls for an undisclosed purpose, of which their political faith in the Nazis is the key. A group of roughly 30 women are shortlisted, including the dedicated Margarita, who assemble for Biondo, who informs them that they're to be tested by men of the Third Reich. They are asked to strip naked, and whilst classical music is played, equally naked SS men frolic with them in a dancing fashion. Those who pass this initial test are given further examinations, such as their tolerance for men with disabilities, lesbians, violence, or even clients of undesirable origins like gypsies and Jews. Vollenberg takes particular interest in Margarita, who passes the entire process with flying colours, and he invites her to his house. Explaining that she cannot be a true Nazi without destroying herself and being reborn, Vollenberg forces her to remove her panties and crawl to him on her knees before roughly kissing her and forcing her head to his groin. Soon after, Germany declares war after invading Poland, the girls of Salon Kitty listening in. After an initial celebration and another performance by Kitty, the Gestapo arrive and arrest her. Seemingly to deport her working girls and closing her down, Kitty is soon brought to Vollenberg, whom she knows as a friend. He claims that he's not responsible, but insists that she must close down unless she agrees to have her whores replaced and move into new premises outside of Berlin's centre. Kitty is forced to move and moves into the exotic villa, perturbed by the new girls' seemingly lack of confidence and warmth. After improving their image, Kitty throws an opening party, which is revealed to be monitored by Biondo and Vollenberg underground, through the use of recording devices. The contents of the secret conversations are then used against their speakers, by Vollenberg who uses them with reports from the girls themselves. Margarita, after having sex with a frontline soldier called Hans, begins to doubt her duties when she and he begin to fall for each other. Hans, depressed at his role in the horrors of war, seemingly tries to reject her while trying to catch a train, but only strengthens Margarita's feelings, causing her to declare her love to him. Later that night, he announces his desire to defect, wanting to elope with her. Vollenberg notices the discrepancy between the report and the recording, and has Hans arrested. Inviting Margarita around again, he forces her to perform sex with his wife in front of him, only to violently dub her sentimental and pathetic before declaring that he wants her to complete his personal Nazi ideology. After one of her whores is killed by Vollenberg for insubordination with a kinky client, another one called Marika discovers that she's pregnant, which is also immediately dealt with by Vollenberg. After Margarita takes a new lover, she discovers that Hans has died and reacts by shooting the guy when he insults Hans as a mere traitor. Covering up for her, Kitty is unable to defray suspicion for long and visits her to convince her to come back. During the chat, Margarita reveals that the girls are spies for Vollenberg and that Kitty should be ashamed at her part in it. Kitty, however, is distraught at learning the reason behind the takeover and the pair agree to work together to find out how they are being spied on. Eventually discovering that the rooms are bugged, Kitty enlists the help of her friend Dino, who gets them a radio transmitter. Margarita submits sexually to Vollenberg, with the radio transmitter hidden in her bag, and drunk on his power, he boasts of having dominion over others, including high-up German officials, and boasting that he can get rid of them easily, declaring that he does not truly believe in Nazism, and his wife's grandfather was Jewish. Dino has the recording made into a proper record, and Margarita submits it as proof of Vollenberg's treasonous intentions. 
Biondo orders him to be executed, which his guards carry out in a sauna, whilst Kitty and Margarita celebrate their success with champagne, just as the windows of the villa shatter ominously. Look! My wife's grandfather was a Jew! Find out that could be dangerous, even for you. Not when I have the power I deserve. The power of Himmler. You're mad. I have in my hands the bedroom secrets of everybody in Germany. Ribbentrop, Goebbels, Keitel, Jodl, even Himmler. I know the weak points of every single one of them. The cocaine they take, their impotence, their perversions, their thieving, their betrayals, their rivalries, defeatist cowards. What do your superiors think about it? They won't have time to think. The original idea wasn't mine, I admit. But I know how I can get rid of them all. At my convenience. You have illusions about your power. No, no, no. Every word is true. It's true. Get that through your head. I don't give a damn about national socialism. Just as none of our leaders give a damn. It's a means to an end. Power! There are no ideals, no faith. You are the one with illusions, Margarita. You and the millions of other Germans who believed in us. Released in 1976, Salon Kitty is an Italian erotic drama. In essence, one of the first Nazi exploitation pictures based on the real-life event of the Salon Kitty brothel. The events here were novelised by writer Peter Norden, and Tinto Brass's film is loosely based on that book. The real Salon Kitty was a high-class Berlin brothel used by the Sicherheindienst, a Nazi intelligence outfit for espionage purposes during World War II. The Salon had been around since the 1930s, but was taken over by SS General Reinhard Heydrich and Walter Schellenberg in 1939. The brothel, located in Charlottenburg, was managed by Katerina Zamit, or Kitty Schmidt, for the entire time. Schmidt had been privately against the Nazi regime and had frequently aided fleeing refugees by depositing some of her large fortune in British banks to aid them once they reached the refuge of the UK. She herself tried to flee the country in 1939, but was caught by the Gestapo and interviewed by Schellenberg. He threatened to send her to a concentration camp if she did not cooperate with their plans. The takeover was engineered by Heydrich to seduce top German dignitaries and foreign people of interest with prostitutes and alcohol so that they would disclose private information and honest thoughts about the Nazi regime during their stay. To aid this endeavour, the building's nine rooms were expanded and ornately redesigned to the superlative standards of the 1930s with expensive furniture and opulent decor. 
Listening devices were also installed all over the building, with a converted basement in which a small group of operators would edit together the conversations of interest gleaned from the bugging devices. The girls of Salon Kitty were specially selected using advertisements from the administration, which read, "Wanted are women and girls who are intelligent, multilingual, nationalistically minded, and furthermore, man crazy." The Sitten Polizei,、uh, the vice squad, arrested hundreds of Berlin's prostitutes and processed them to find the most attractive and most intelligent as, as potential agents. The girls were instructed how to recognise specific military outfits, how to glean information from innocuous small talk, and to make reports on all of their findings. Schmidt was instructed to continue business as normal, with a special list of twenty girls whom certain VIPs from Rothenburg could select to spend the night with exclusively. The building had some rather notable guests, such as Galeazzo Chiano,、uh, the son of dictator Benito Mussolini, who reportedly had mostly negative things to say about the Nazis. The SS general Sepp Dietrich once invoked the Rothenburg Code to have an all-night orgy with all twenty of the special girls, and notably spilled no secrets during his stay. Joseph Goebbels was also a visitor to watch lesbian acts, strangely at odds with the Nazi views on homosexuality. The building was destroyed, however, in 1942 during an air raid, so the operations ceased pretty much immediately. With Schmidt being threatened not to reveal anything about the operation, or she would face retaliation, she spoke nothing of the events at Salon Kitty, even up until her death in 1954. And the whole incident only became public due to Schellenberg's memoirs, which were published in 1956. The original script for the film by Maria Pia Foschko was written initially to be more of a sexploitation picture, but Brass insisted that it be reworked to include political subtext and a more satirical outlook on the Nazi regime. It underwent rewrites with assistance from Ennio Di Concini and became more of an extravagant, over-the-top satire of Nazi ideology in general, with the obligatory ass-kissing of Italians. Quite often in Italian Nazi exploitation films, Italians are often portrayed as not being as complicit in the Nazis' war efforts as they were in reality, and this film's no exception. The whole solution to the problem of Wallenberg is through the Italian character Dino, who is considerably less twatty to the women than the German characters. The film was shot mainly at Dia Studios in Rome, with some shots on location in Germany. The production designer Ken Adam had recently had a nervous breakdown on the set of his previous movie Barry Lyndon due to director Stanley Kubrick's period accuracy and micromanagement. But he describes his work on Salon Kitty as quite a regenerative one for his creativity. He based the design of Vollenberg's apartment on his own family's apartment in World War II era Germany. Vollenberg's apartment also used a real marble floor, as paradoxically the fake marble was actually more expensive to purchase. Costumes were designed by Ugo Peracoli and Jos Jacob, and constructed by Torelli Costume of Rome. Jacob was also the designer of the kinky uniforms that Vollenberg wears during the film. The dress that actress Teresa Ann Savoy is wearing is also a copy of the dress that Joan Crawford wore in 1932's Grand Hotel. Tinto Brass considered himself the king of mirrors, as he reportedly knew how to film mirrors so that the camera would be invisible. So, to this end, he purposely put a lot of mirrors into the film to show off this aspect of his skills. Not all of his carefulness paid off, however, as the projector used for the Nazi film on the naked woman's body did not actually exist in the time period that the film is supposed to be set in. 
Tinto Brass explained that the actresses, who played the prostitutes, were quite enthusiastic about their roles, as they'd previously not explored that avenue of acting before, and they were able to indulge in another side of their craft. Originally, German actress Bridget Skay, from Mario Barber's Bay of Blood and the later Nazi film The Beast in Heat, both of which were nasties, she was originally a countess, but reportedly left the project when Brass asked to see her backside. Not particularly sure what context this was in, but either way, the character was subsequently written out. Richard Crenner was also originally cast as Cliff, but he left during filming as was instead replaced by veteran actor John Ireland. The beginning scene in the surgery is meant to demonstrate the German people's purity and superiority over the other races, by using a gaunt, emaciated black man who's died in a police gunfight, compared with a dead German female who died during an illegal abortion. Her crime is compared favourably to the black man's as she retains her Aryan beauty, whilst his racial features are dismissed simply as vestigial and as a reason for his criminal behaviour. This still happens in today's world, unfortunately, where non-white perpetrators are treated much more harshly than their white counterparts, even in cases where a white person's crime is actually worse, or even whenever an act of terrorism occurs, if the perpetrator is non-white, they're immediately demonised, branded a terrorist, and have their entire criminal history paraded by the media. The response to a white terrorist act is often subdued, and blamed on mental problems, and even blamed on the victims themselves. It is hard to ignore such injustices today, when the advent of the internet allows us to see these instances so often. Even the figure of Jesus Christ in the movie is purported to be proof of the superiority of Germanic peoples, for the erroneous Western depiction of him having blonde hair and blue eyes. The wanky opinions by high-up Germans continues on into the dinner scene, where German law is considered better than the fascist Italians, who are also too exotically coloured for the German people's tastes. Margarita's character is actually quite scornful of her superiors, due to a combination of her fiery support for the National Socialists and her recognition that their opinions are in fact only cherry-picked from the Nazi regime, as a mere reinforcement of the supposed inner idea of superiority to other people. A scene that does stick in the memory, however, is the sequence with the young Hitler youth girl, crushing the Jewish boy's toy. It's incredibly effective, very cold and chilling. Even the fish in the aquarium during the scene are looking upon it in silent horror. I was quite shocked, however, to see the scene of pigs being cut open to prepare for a meal. I certainly didn't expect the scene, and it did knock me for six. I assume the scene has been left in, even in today's BBFC version, is because pigs are slaughtered no differently in an abattoir, and it was obviously culled from some stock footage of some kind. Regardless, it really doesn't belong, and we could have done without it, especially as the pigs' slaughterers don't seem particularly irked about what they've just done. The set design, combined with the cinematography, is really quite stunning. It's opulent, and it reminds me of the extravagance of Barber's Blood and Black Lace. During the girls' changing in the dressing rooms, you can see that Tinto Brass does share a talent with Jess Franco. He certainly knows how to photograph women and show off their captivating beauty. There is a remarkable amount of nudity in this film, though, much more full frontal than I remember in almost any other film. But there's also a huge amount of homoeroticism. Biondo and Wallenberg are in a hall at the beginning, with naked men all over the place, fencing, wrestling, you name it. And during some of Kitty's performances, her clearly feminine male staff frolic about with her and sometimes fillet her cane as if it was a phallus. 
There's also just some plain kinky and almost pornographic scenes, like a woman being whipped sexually by a dominatrix, a man masturbating and being turned on by describing a violent fantasy to his woman, of which there's definitely an erect penis being shown, and there's also a Nazi in slave bondage gear who's treated like a dog, urinating on a giant dildo. There's even a guy, who's using a projector, covers a woman in the images of the Nazi armies and news footage, whilst making her use a cock-shaped bread dildo between her legs so that he can fillet her. It's almost like a Freudian homosexual sex scene where he's actually fillating Nazi ideology and images of Hitler itself, only adding to the homoerotic undertones that the film displays. Despite the film's dark tone, some of the scenes are actually quite humorous, such as Kitty criticising the 20 girls. This one looks constipated, she's even making me feel uncomfortable. I imagine our guests would prefer to be in Sunday school than be with her. Or even Wallenberg's reaction to Kitty's specifications. If one of them doesn't perform, let me know. After all, they are here for your... Even the scene of the girls undergoing their transformation elicits a snigger or two, when you see merkins and the like, or even douches in the back of the bathroom. The pre-selection test section of the film, though, is clearly designed to just merely shock with its unconventional imagery, such as the girls having sex with an amputee, or a dwarf with a hunchback, or even just a violent-looking brute. Kitty's character is suitably fiery and extravagant. She's clearly the life of the party and is always up for celebrating. It does hit you, though, how the Salon Kitty is affected when she, in one scene, declares that she'll go to Hitler himself to decry her unfair treatment, only to be photographed in the next scene, defeated and deflated with none of the passion that she had before. Unlike her real-life counterpart, she's also unaware of Wallenberg's true intentions when he moves her business, and is intensely distraught at having been indirectly complicit in his machinations. She bravely, however, decides to rebel, only reiterating her fiery determination. But nothing quite sets the tone of the film, however, than the dramatic irony of Kitty's second song, which is sung just before she's arrested by the Gestapo. They say that all things must have an end, that broken bones and broken hearts take oh so long to mend. You hear it so often, it must be true. Will you believe it when it happens to you? Your morning coffee won't taste the same, a fix won't help when you've only got yourself to blame. Your bed's so empty, your world so bland. Is there no joy? Is there no love? Is there no turning back? Your life's in pieces, what can you say? As you light yet another cigarette, it's gone far away. With sleepless eyes you realise it's not the same world anymore, on the morning after or the night before. Margarita's character is also incredibly interesting, as I initially disliked her quite immensely, due to her obvious devotion to the Nazi cause. But this soon unravels over a period of scenes, when she begins to fall in love with a soldier who does not believe in the regime, which is soon cemented by his unjust murder at the hands of her employers. She clearly represents the youth of Germany at that time, quite easily led, indoctrinated almost whimsically at the passionate idea of being superior to others, and just of a fiery, passionate and determined temper. She soon learns the hard way, however, that the things she loves in life, such as being free of conservative parents or making love with a man who actually cares for her, is actually under threat from the very people that she's serving. It is hard not to smile when she and Kitty celebrate their entrapment of Wallenberg with a glass of champagne. Wallenberg himself is a completely repugnant character. 
rather similar to his counterpart in The Damned. He's perverted, obsessed with Margarita, and seemingly a stalwart example of Nazism in a person. He's kinky, disrespectful to his wife and his charges, and extremely devoted to the ideals of National Socialism, almost mentoring Margarita in how Nazis should be acting, and cutting down his own assistant when he questions his judgement. Where it gets really interesting, though, is where it's revealed that Wallenberg is like many other high-ranking Nazis. He's only involved for the unparalleled amount of power and control that it offers him. In this essence, it's interesting to just realise that he is only human after all, albeit drunk on power and cloaking himself in a protective shell of Nazism. Like Martin from The Damned, Helmut Berger plays Wallenberg with an icy powerful performance. You really could believe that he was zealous enough to be a Nazi himself. Helmut Berger, of course, we've covered before, he was in The Damned, but he also crops up in 1970s version of Dorian Gray, uh, The Bloodstained Butterfly, Mad Dog Killer, Dynasty, and The Godfather Part 3. Ingrid Thulin, who plays main protagonist Kitty, we've seen before too, in both The Damned and Short Night of the Glass Dolls. Margarita, though, was played by British actress Teresa Anne Savoy, who'd later reappear in Tinto Brass's more well-known sexploitation film Caligula, infamous for its hardcore pornographic inserts and relatively highbrow cast, including Malcolm McDowell, Peter O'Toole and also Helen Mirren. John Steiner, who played Wallenberg's crony Biondo, was also a fellow British actor and likewise also cropped up in Caligula. He's most recognisable, I'd say, sorry if this spoils it for anyone, as the squeaky-voiced killer in Argento's video Nasty Tenebrae, but he also did appear in Fulci's White Fang, uh, Deodato's Waves of Lust, Deported Women of the SS Special Section, uh, Beyond the Door 2, A Man Called Blade, The Last Hunter, which was also a nasty, uh, Cut and Run, and he was also in the slasher film Body Count. The dominatrix Helga was played by Sarah Sperati, who reappeared in Deported Women of the SS, whilst the, elderly, whilst the elderly Hilda was played by veteran Maria Michi, who'd been in What Have You Done to Solange, and also Last Tango in Paris. Rosemary Lint, who played Susan, she appeared in The Giallo, Who Saw Her Die, as well as Joe D'Amato's Emmanuel's Revenge, whilst Tina Ormor, who played Wallenberg's wife, appeared in Sergio Martino's Torso. Now, Paola Senatore, who played the pregnant Marika, I recognised from Umberto Lenzi's Eaten Alive. But I investigated a little bit further, and I found out she's also in Flower with the Deadly Sting, uh, The Killer Reserved Nine Seats, and she's also in Emmanuel in America, along with Laura Gemser. The small but memorable role of Dr. Schwab was played by Luciano Rossi, who was a character actor who's been in quite a bunch of stuff, really, like the original Django films, uh, Death Walks on High Heels, Death Walks at Midnight, Emmanuel's Revenge, Red Knights of the Gestapo, as well as Fulci's Contraband and City of the Living Dead. Italian Gaidino was played by Stefano Flores of Four Flies and Grey Velvet, whilst Melissa Longo from Fulci's Cat in the Brain also appears in this as one of Kitty's girls. Gianfranco Bullo, who played the randomly loud-speaking wolf, was in Watch Me When I Kill and also The Bloodstained Shadow, whilst Salvatore Baccaro, the rather menacing man who violates the Salon Kitty candidate in her cell, he's appeared in all sorts of Neanderthal-type roles, like in Deep Red, Emmanuel in America, uh, SS Girls, The Beast in Heat, and also Star Crash by Luigi Cozzi. 
The tattoo gypsy in one of the other cells was played by Pietro Teresi, and he'd had small roles in the Section 3 nasty Werewolf Woman, and he was also in Popeye and Umberto Lenzi's Iron Master. Another blink-and-you'll-miss-it cameo is by Aldo Valletti, who is in both The Perfume of the Lady in Black, but most infamously the president in Pierre Paolo Pasolini's Salo, 120 Days of Sodom. In Salon Kitty, he's the chap that's actually throwing phallus-shaped darts at the target-painted crotch of a hooker. The eagle-eared amongst you may also, but it's a very long shot, recognise the voice of Kitty when she's singing her songs. It's actually Annie Ross, who we've seen previously in Witchcraft, and she also popped up in Superman 3 and also the Basket Case sequels. Director Tinto Brass is an Italian filmmaker who was originally offered the choice of directing A Clockwork Orange, and he of course went on to direct Caligula after Salon Kitty, which was infamously re-edited against Brass's wishes. Writer Arnio De Concini was one of Mario Bava's collaborators, working on both Black Sunday and The Girl Who Knew Too Much, whilst Maria Pia Fusco had worked on Joe D'Amato's Emmanuel in Bangkok, as well as Emmanuel in America. Ermano Donati, one of the producers, had worked previously on Navajo Joe, as well as D'Amato's Beyond the Darkness, whilst the other, Giulio Sparigia, he worked on Fulci's version of The Black Cat. Now, the composer of Scavellini's White Dress for Mariel, Fiorenzo Carpi, he worked on the soundtrack of Salon Kitty, whilst the cinematography was done by Silvano Ippoliti, who worked on Navajo Joe, The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire, Return of White Fang, Caligula, and also Amazonia, the Catherine Miles story. The film's assistant directors were Stefano Sparigia from Return of the White Fang, and also the mystery film And Then There Were None. But surprisingly, there's also actor Werner Pockerth, who's quite a recognisable face in the video nasty world, being in both Jess Franco's Devil Hunter and Marianne David Vida's Bloodlust. But we've also seen him before in Terror Express, and he also pops up in Venus in Furs, uh, Cat and Nine Tales, Iguana with a Tongue of Fire, uh, Return of White Fang, and he's also in Ratman. The film was released in Italy in 1976 to a fairly muted fanfare, in the US and the UK cinema versions, some scenes were pre-cut by the distributor before submission, such as some of the scenes in the testing cells, and also the heavier sex scenes. In the UK, the cinema release was further cut to remove graphic full-frontal female nudity, uh, the scene with the projector and the phallic piece of bread, and also the scene of dart throwing at a woman's groin. In the US, 23 minutes of footage altogether was removed, mostly of dialogue pertaining to the film's satirical and political undertones, and it was redistributed under the title Madame Kitty, presumably to sell the flick as more of an, a sexploitation sort of romp. The UK did not receive a VHS release until 1993, completely bypassing the nasty scare, but it did suffer heavy censorship from the BBFC, amounting to about 12 minutes altogether. It was only in 2004 when the uncut version was passed, restoring even the pre-cuts from the distributor, which, as a result of not being in the original print, are now dubbed in Italian language only. And that was Salon Kitty, everybody, so let's get straight into the next film, which is Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS.
female SS officer named Ilsa has sex with a prisoner, begging him not to ejaculate. He does anyway, prompting her to mutter, you should have waited. And she has him sent back to the camp, having him castrated as punishment. A new group of women arrive at the camp, revealed to be a medical camp in which Ilsa is the head doctor and the commandant. The women are sorted into manual labour workers and experiment subjects, whilst a small group of men, including the rather Aryan-looking American wolf, arrives, catching the eye of Ilsa. The new women discover that a number of females in the camp have been intentionally infected with deadly diseases, like Kata, who's been infected with syphilis so that the doctors may work on potential cures. Meanwhile, Ilsa is performing secret experiments to prove that women are more resilient to pain than their male counterparts. A man named Mario in the camp tells Wolf of Ilsa's castrations on the men. In return, Wolf explains that the Allies are closing in on Germany, apparently signalling an end to the war. As punishment for earlier misdeeds, one of the women prisoners is given to a group of SS soldiers, who gang-rape and kill her, whilst another couple is flogged repeatedly for interacting with each other. Ilsa has Wolf come to her room to have sex with her, and he manages to avoid coming, impressing Ilsa enough to spare his life. The women prisoners, including Anna, Rosette and Irene, are subjected to medical examinations and then violated with an electrically charged dildo, revealing Anna to be the most resilient. That night, on request of the women, Mario escapes from his barracks and infiltrates theirs to hand them a map of the camp, whilst Wolf satisfies Ilsa's two right-hand women, Megrate and Gretchen in a bid to discover whether she imagined his control or not. When he passes the test, she utilises him again for her pleasure, declaring that she wishes to have his children once Germany is victorious. After torturing Anna for trying to instigate an escape, Ilsa is shocked to discover that she still resists pain greatly and is pleased when her general announces a visit, sure that Anna will prove her theory to him. The general and his assistant Richter arrive, and with the help of her assistant Bins, Ilsa shows off her medical experiments to him, as well as the tests with Anna, who by now has become a mere shell after three days of torture. The general is quite happy with the progress and attends a dinner organised by Ilsa, rewarding her with the Reichführer's Cross, the highest commendation for an SS officer, and later requests her to urinate on him in a sexual fashion. Ilsa, seemingly irritated by the general's actions, begs for Wolf again, who ties her up in a bondage play, only for her to realise too late that he's tying her up for something else. He grabs her pistol and aids the women prisoners in their escape along with the men, who kill several of the soldiers in a full-on breakout. After a massive shootout, with many prisoners and soldiers killed, Mario and the remaining prisoners take Magret, Gretchen and Bins hostage. Wolf and Rosette escape the camp on foot, while Kata and the others execute their captors with a pistol. Anna, too, awakens and enters Ilsa's bedroom with the intent of stabbing her, but unfortunately succumbs to her injuries before she can do so. A German squadron later arrives, led by Richter, and they attack the camp, killing Mario and everyone else. Coming upon the restrained Ilsa in her room with Anna's corpse, Richter also executes her, revealed to be on the general's orders. As the carnage comes to a close, Rosette and Wolf are seen looking on from afar. There is no need for you to be afraid. This is no duck cow, no Ravensbrook. We are doctors and we are here to help you. Your stay with us will be short, but 
in it you will be helped to serve the Third Reich. That is your destiny. We welcome you to Comp 9. This way, girls. This way. So, let us begin. Seven, four, six. Come, child. Put your clothes aside. We cannot see. I'm, I'm ashamed. Ashamed? There's nothing of which to be ashamed. Well, we have to see you in, in order to know what work to assign you. We are doctors. Yeah. How old are you, dear? Eighteen, Fraulein Doctor. Eighteen? They're good. Thank you, Fraulein Doctor. Three, three, two. Commandant, <coughs> you, you have decided? Mm. I, I do not think the work can be. I am strong. I can do any work you wish. I have no fear of work. That is good. Very good. Stop! You were not given permission to leave. I thought that you... Here, you do not think. Only obey orders. Do you understand? Yes. Yes, what? Yes, Fräulein Doctor. It is that door. Next. Nine, seven, seven. Eight, nine, four. Four, four, four. Go, go. Fräulein Doctor, what work do the women do? Work? Through there. Oh, they are retrained. To serve the soldiers of the Third Reich. And me? will serve in a different way. You will help the cause of medical research and thereby save thousands of lives. I see. What is your name? Rosette, Fräulein Doctor. Rosette. I shall not forget it. A massively different kind of beast, Ilse Schiebelf of the SS is a rather infamous Canadian Nazi-exploitation film released in 1975. Like Salon Kitty, Ilse also has some rather loose inspirations from a real-life event. In this case, two Nazi-era female guards, Ilse Koch and Irma Gresche. Time for another history lesson. 
Ilse Koch was born Margarete Ilse Kohler in 1906 in Dresden, Germany, as the daughter of a factory foreman. Reportedly a happy child, she went on to accounting school at the age of 15 and found work as a bookkeeping clerk. This was during the economic crisis in Germany caused by the loss of World War I, and it eventually led to her joining the Nazi party in 1932. She was the wife of a prominent commandant named Karl Otto Koch, who she met in 1934 and married in 1936. At that time, the commandant presided over Sachsenhausen concentration camp in Berlin, and so Ilse subsequently became a secretary and a guard. In 1937, Ilse's husband was transferred command of the concentration camp at Buchenwald, and in 1941 he helped set up the extermination camp at Madjanek. Known colloquially as the Witch of Buchenwald amongst the prisoners that she watched over, her behaviour towards them was nothing short of disgusting. She frequently physically attacked prisoners, had them often murdered, murdered for minor infractions, and even infamously commissioned the murder and skinning of several tattooed charges in order to fashion lampshades from the tattooed skin. She also forced some sexual relations with some of the male prisoners despite her marriage to Koch. Both she and her husband were arrested in 1943 by the SS on charges of personal enrichment and embezzlement. Ilse was acquitted of the charges in 1944 due to lack of evidence, but her husband was found guilty and sentenced to death by firing squad in April 1945. Ilse returned to her family in Ludwigsburg until June of the same year when the US authorities arrested her and 30 others to stand trial at Dachau. The tattoo skin atrocity had several witnesses, but no concrete evidence could be presented at the trial, so the charges for this were dropped, but Koch was sentenced to life imprisonment anyway, despite claiming that she was pregnant. Although her sentence was reduced to four years in 1948, a public outcry caused her charges to become reinstated, and she was resentenced to life imprisonment and forfeiture of all of her civil rights in 1951. She tried to appeal the sentence at the International Human Rights Commission, but it was rejected. In 1967, she hung herself at Eichach Prison at the age of 60, due to delusions that the concentration camp prisoners were visiting her and abusing her in her cell. Irma Gresche, on the other hand, was born in 1923, as one of five children of a dairy worker Alfred and his wife Berta. Berta killed herself in 1936 by drinking hydrochloric acid, after she discovered that Alfred had cheated on her with the daughter of a local pub owner. With the whole family being affected by Berta's gruesome death, Alfred eventually joined the Nazi party in 1937, while Irma became much more timid. During her years in school, she was the frequent target of bullies due to her poor academic performance and her reluctance to fight back. This culminated in her leaving at school at the age of 14 to take odd jobs in an SS sanatorium, in her personal quest to become a nurse. After failing several times to break into a medical profession, her eyes were instead set on the League of German Girls, with which she had become obsessed with its ideals about women, much to her father's chagrin. At the age of 18, she'd moved to an SS female helper's training camp, outside of the concentration camp of Ravensbrück, notable for its all-female prisoner roster. At this point, Greshi was completely devoted to Nazi ideals, and volunteered to help in the running of the camp, where she excelled due to her unrelenting brutality and devotion to the cause. 
For her stellar performance, she was immediately promoted to a guard position at Ravensbrück in 1942, and she advanced to the camp at Auschwitz-Birkenau by 1943, earning a promotion to Rapporführerin, the second highest rank of female guards. During her stay at Auschwitz, she quickly gained notoriety for her sadistic behaviour and lascivious nymphomania. She was ruthless in her selection of prisoners for the gas chambers, sometimes retaining attractive women for her own personal abuse. She also frequently slept with many of the SS guards, including the infamous Joseph Mengele, and forcibly raped both male and female prisoners, occasionally bribing younger girls to keep lookout for her as she forcibly raped them. She also became pregnant through some of her acts and forced the surgeon at Auschwitz to perform an illegal abortion on her. Her sexual sadism grew to such a point that she began to become sexually aroused from whipping females on their breasts and viewing the resultant pain and suffering. On a few occasions, she was even witness to drool with sexual pleasure at seeing some of the injuries that she was inflicting, which only enticed her to increase the veracity and intensity of her actions. A majority of her cruel acts were sexual in nature, but she also indulged in just pure violence, using a cellophane whip that she carried. She would often punch prisoners repeatedly in the face until their skin came off, kicked them with her pointed boots until they bled, shot prisoners to death with her pistol, forced prisoners to hold heavy rocks above their heads whilst kneeling, set a pack of starved pet dogs on them, whipped and flogged prisoners to death, and she also psychologically terrorised her charges, visibly pleased by their looks of fear. Although she was not discriminate in her barbarous acts, women bore the brunt of most of her attacks, and she was thought to have groomed herself meticulously. She wore a customised, sexualised uniform, and coated herself in expensive perfumes, as a deliberate ploy to make her female underlings feel even more inferior. Greshi conducted herself in this manner until 1945, when the Allies were making progress, and the camp at Auschwitz-Birkenau was being evacuated of German personnel. She accompanied a prisoner transport and made her way to Bergen-Belsen, where she was captured by the British Army in April of 1945, along with other officers. At Belsen, she was put on trial for her crimes, and just nine weeks later she was found guilty of crimes against humanity, mostly for her notorious abuse and the murder of her prisoners. She was sentenced to death by hanging, one of only three female guards to suffer this fate, and also the youngest woman to die under British law in the 20th century, at the young age of 22. Her final words before she was hung were schnell, the German word for quickly. Apart from being a portmanteau of both these women's names, the Ilsa character has specific characteristics of both figures. Namely, the salacious dress and behaviour, the sadistic use of violence with a whip, and an unrelenting penchant for cruelty and murder. However, the character is actually quite loosely based, which we'll get to in a moment. The film came about directly from the success of Lee Frost's and David Freeman's Love Camp 7, which grew massively popular in Canada. And in response to this, writers Andre Link and John Dunning, who we've mentioned previously as David Cronenberg's collaborators of choice, came up with a draft script for the Ilsa character. It underwent some rewrites to exploit the character's sexual proclivities, and David Friedman then offered to produce the film. Don Edmonds, despite deeming the screenplay the worst piece of shit he'd ever read, took on the film anyway. 
The film was shot in just nine days on the set of the 1965 TV series Hogan's Heroes. The series had just been cancelled by the distributor, and the crew learned that the script for Ilsa involved the camp being burned down. As the set was to have been demolished anyway, the crew gave permission for Edmonds to use the set in order to save on the cost of its destruction. Phyllis Davis was briefly considered for the titular role of Ilsa, but producer David Friedman instead insisted on using the rather buxom Diane Thorne, presumably for her past work in sexploitation pictures. Thorne is actually rather good in the role. She's able to flip between quite a sickly sweet warmth to an icy and callous murderous rage with quite little regard for others. While her performance is very hyperbolic and stereotyped, it is interesting to see her character break down slightly after her encounter with Wolf. She's clearly hypersexual, wanting sex to last much longer with her partner than the men can usually withstand. While Wolf, who's a rather chauvinistic example of a man, boasts that he can hold out as long as possible, this throws Ilsa's usual lack of regard for men off kilter, and she begins to doubt her own perception of the lovemaking session. By the end of the film, after being disgusted by the general's perversions, she longs for Wolf again, and this time submits herself to his commands and is dominated herself. This might suggest that, in fact, Ilsa has actually waited for a dominant male, and is always disappointed when the male refuses to take control, especially in his final act of controlling when he can orgasm. She quite happily allows herself to be tied up, rather at odds, really, with her usual domineering abusive stance, which may ultimately be an internal desire to force cruelty and violence on others that she herself craves in a sexual context. But regardless, any serious pretensions that the character has are rather perfunctory, as the shapely Diane Thorne has clearly been chosen simply for her figure. Her antics are also so cartoonish and hysterical that it undermines any serious examination of her as a realistic character. And while she is sadistic and cruel, the sexual sadism is relatively low-key compared to the real-life inspiration. Other characters are relatively throwaway, such as the various female prisoners, who simply function as vehicles to display the cruel sequences of torture. Wolf is also rather plain and almost annoyingly confident in his ability to remain unspent during sex, whilst Mario is also painfully generic. It's really only the vile characters that have any sort of recognisable personality, like Gretchen and Magrette, Ilsa's two hench ladies. In spite of the quite camp atmosphere to the film, the graphic violent sequences actually do manage to be quite unsettling, mostly due to the rather bipolar tone of the film, which flips from rather flippant and silly to starkly cold and dark. We have fatal floggings using whips, a woman having her feet screwed into with nails, electric dildo violations, thankfully off-screen, a woman being boiled to death, ones locked in an airtight room at high pressure, um, electrocutions to the nipples and genitals, hot tongs inserted into orifices, again, off-screen. But most squirm-inducing are the scenes of surgery without anaesthetic during the general's visit. The revenge sequences, while also mildly graphic, are just nowhere near as satisfying due to their relative quickness. Some several soldiers are stabbed, are shot, or they have their throats slit. The main players, however, like Magrette, Gretchen and Bins, are executed with a shot to the head, a far cry from the torturous agony that they ought to have been dealt for their horrendous crimes. Other sequences are more disturbing due to the implication such as the scene where Ilsa has a prisoner standing on a block of ice at the table with a noose around her neck, obviously leading eventually to her imminent death. 
These are the only real highlights to a film such as this, So, but Gorehound certainly won't be disappointed with what's on show. Because the plot itself is actually rather basic, and it doesn't even follow its own continuity particularly well. Wolf is caught by Ilsa talking to Rosette, and she basically in- almost instantly forgets about the harsh punishment that she's strongly recommended earlier. The General is rather irritated by Il- Ilsa's private research, but then seemingly celebrates her progress with an SS reward. But then he does another complete 180 again, and orders the camp to be destroyed in the climax. And the biggest lapse in continuity of them all, Ilsa is actually killed by Richter at the film's conclusion, rendering the three sequels in which Ilsa features rather non-canon, if we're being strict. But a minor thing that I noticed of interest that some horror fans may also get is Anna. She's almost completely dead by the end of the film, covered head to toe in blood, with an eye removed, she's got burns, I mean, you name it, she's suffered it, all in the name of Ilsa's experiment to prove that women can bear more pain. And Anna has actually excelled, not even screaming once during the whole procedure. It is uncannily similar to Pascal Laugier's French horror film Martyrs, in which there's another character called Anna, who is similarly tortured in extreme fashion, in order to see how close that she can get to death. The imagery is remarkably similar, and you do wonder whether the idea initially came from this film. Ilsa was played by Diane Thorne, almost now known exclusively for this role. She'd been in bit parts before, in stuff like Star Trek and the 1971 version of Pinocchio, before actually landing the role as Ilsa. She then reappeared for all three sequels, Ilsa, Harem Keeper of the Oil Shakes, Ilsa, the Wicked Warden, and Ilsa, the Tigress of Siberia. Sandy Richman, who played Magrette, was actually more well-known as a stunt performer on things like Exterminator Part 2, Nine and a Half Weeks, The Money Pit, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, Ghostbusters 2, and also The King of New York. George Buck Flower played the minion Bins. He's most recognisable as the homeless guy from the Back to the Future films, but he also popped up in the video Nasty, The Witch Who Came From The Sea, Ilsa, Harem Keeper of the Oil Shakes, uh, Drive-In Massacre, The Fog, Escape from New York, Sorority Babes in the Slime Ball Bolarama, Maniac Cop, Pumpkinhead, Mac and Me, uh, They Live, Village of the Damned, and even Wishmaster. Richard Kennedy, who played the Foul General, was in quite a few nasties of his own, like Invasion of the Blood Farmers, The Love Butcher, and The Witch Who Came from the Sea. One of the prisoners was also played by Wayne Beauchamp, who did the special effects on Ilsa, and also many others, like most of the Children of the Corn films, Phantasm 2 and 3, Reanimator 2, Maniac Cop 2, Exorcist 2, and even non-horror films like Police Academy 5, Footloose, Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie, and Project Almanac. He has, though, of course, returned to horrors recently, like the remake of My Bloody Valentine, the satirical Rubber, and the very recent The Strangers Pray by Night. Another female prisoner with red hair was played by Colleen Brennan, who was in Foxy Brown, and also the Ilsa sequel, Harem Keeper of the Oil Shakes, whilst Jacqueline Giroux, who played Rosette, reappeared in Drive-In Massacre. The unfortunate lady to perish in the pressure chamber was played by Ushi Degard, who made appearances in the video Nasty the Toy Box, the Ilsa sequel of The Oil Shakes, um, and even the Kentucky Fried Movie. But she was also a producer of sexploitation flicks, like Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, or the rather sultry named Can I Do It Till I Need Glasses. 
The Nazi with the large moustache, who has a, an impromptu neck shaving, was played by John F. Goff, who was a character actor who had multiple roles in exploitation, like uh, The Witch Who Came From The Sea, uh, The Oil Shakes sequel, uh, Drive-In Massacre, The Fog, Alligator, Maniac Cop, and also They Live. The director, though, Don Edmonds, was more of an all-rounder in terms of filmmaking, he, for example, directed, produced, and had a cameo in the sequel, Harim Keeper of the Oil Shakes. He had a main role in the video nasty Home Sweet Home, as well as working as a producer and stunt person on it. He even produced 1980's Beyond Evil, or 1993's a creature feature, Skeeter. The writers were Jonah Royston and John Saxton, both of whom worked on 1979's Plague, but Saxton went on to write the screenplay for The Class of 1984 and the video nasty Happy Birthday to Me. Producer David F. Friedman was also no stranger to the video nasty scene, producing both Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Feast and Lee Frost's Love Camp 7, of which sprang the entire Ilsa production, of course. He also worked further with Gordon Lewis on 2000 Maniacs, uh, Colour Me Blood Red, and the belated sequel Blood Feast 2. And he also had a cameo in the rather paltry American Werewolf in Paris. Well, compared to American Werewolf in London, anyway. Director of photography on this was Glenn Rowland. He'd worked on the Oil Shakes sequel, as well as the Section 3 title Pigs, which is also known as Daddy's Deadly Darling. The film's gruesome effects were done mainly by Wayne Bouchamp, as mentioned before, but he was assisted by Joe Blasco, who did the effects on Garden of the Dead, uh, David Cronenberg's Shivers and Rabbit, Track of the Moon Beast, and also Ruby. The film, understandably, has a rather chequered release history due to the controversial subject matter. Apart from being banned in Australia, Germany and Norway, the film was submitted to the UK cinemas in 1975 and was rejected outright by the BBFC. It was submitted again in 1976 and just rejected all over again. The distributors did not apparently try again. And they still have not, which means that Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS, is still technically banned in the UK, as it's been rejected by the BBFC twice. This, of course, meant that Ilsa was already banned during the Nasties, so importing the VHS from the US would have really been the only way to see this film. Despite the shoddiness of the production and the vacuous function of the film's excesses, it has to be said that Ilsa is actually probably one of the most influential films of this genre. Apart from spawning Italian knockoffs like Dr. Crash in The Beast in Heat or Elsa in Fräulein Devil, almost every dominatrix Nazi lady character has origins in this original portrayal by Diane Thorne, from the silliness of the Spanish film The Mad Foxes to the recent video games of Wolfenstein. Whilst not Particularly well received at the time, critical reception has been a little more positive in recent years, and it certainly remains a popular film in cult circles. It won the Best Alternative Release Award at the 1985 AVN Awards. Uh, the German director, George Butgereit, uh, referenced it in his film, De Todder's King. Um, he mentions a, a title called Vera, Death Angel of the Gestapo. And even Rob Zombie references it with the werewolf woman of the SS section of 2007's Grindhouse. The film is, of course, available uncut freely on DVD in the US and across Europe in various forms. Though, do beware of certain German prints. There is word that some of them have actually been censored quite extensively of the violent scenes. So do use caution if you're a bit of a completist. 
And that's the end of the show, everybody. We got there in the end, eh? Thanks ever so much, as always. I know I must drone on for absolutely ages. But on the slim chance that you do enjoy my fluty tones, do send us some feedback on either the show or the films that we're covering. Our schedule is on Twitter and Facebook if you need it, which is also where you can post bits and bobs. Even general horror chit-chat is welcome. Or you can email stuff over using nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. Now next week we're tackling yet a new genre to the show, one that is explicitly Italian and one that is not necessarily horror either. We're studying two Poliziotteschi films next week, specifically two of Umberto Lenzi's examples. In a nutshell, they're basically police-related action thrillers, often with brutal violence, cheesy dialogue and macho-drenched car chases and gunfights. So find out more next week when I'll return with another episode for you all. Ciao for now, guys, and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Goodbye!